Hello and welcome to Following the Rules. This is a podcast about the rules shaping UK and EU financial services and the people responsible for understanding and implementing them. Because in one of the world's most regulated sectors, following the rules isn't always easy. I'm your host, financial journalist Lucy McNulty, and every episode I'll be asking the most influential personalities in financial regulation for their input on the sector's most pressing issues. Oxbow Partners is happy to support this episode of Following the Rules. Oxbow Partners is a management consultancy specialising in the insurance industry. In 2022, we were again named one of the top 10 consultancies in the sector by the Financial Times. We help our clients, who include insurers, reinsurers, regulators and investors, with everything from growth strategy to operations, technology and M&A, not to mention the impact of the increasingly complex regulatory environment on their businesses, such as the current FCA General Insurance Pricing Fairness Rules, about which you'll find lots of commentary on our website, oxpopartners.com. If you're keen to understand the challenges and opportunities coming down the track for your business, please drop us a line. In the meantime, enjoy this podcast. With the conversations I've had with my peers, I think we're all desperately making sure we don't underestimate this. Would I expect to speak to anyone who thinks they've got everything perfect right now? No. The spotlight is very bright and there are various lobbyist groups that will leverage their tools to make sure that the financial sector is moving as quickly as it possibly can. And we are seeing that as real and an imminent threat. Today's guests set out how financial services firms should best respond to the now myriad and rapidly changing environmental, social and governance requirements in existence worldwide, and the steps they should take now to prepare for formal or informal challenges to their ESG credentials. They outline the role of legal and compliance staff, as well as front office executives, in such responses, and the common mistakes such individuals should avoid. They also discuss the ESG-related challenges that they believe not enough people are paying attention to. Nicola Higgs advises banks, fund managers and insurers on UK and European financial services regulatory matters as a partner in law firm Latham & Watkins' London office and global co-chair of the firm's financial institutions industry group. Simon Welsh oversees banking group Credit Suisse's legal response to sustainability-related matters as its head of legal for sustainability. Hi Nicola, hi Simon, welcome to Following the Rules. Hi Lucy, thanks for having us. Morning, Lucy. Thank you for having us indeed. We're here because compliance with ESG requirements continues to cause headaches for boards, investors and their clients. The regulatory expectations currently are either unclear, in development or overlapping with requirements in other jurisdictions. And we're in a situation as ever where there's a regulatory uncertainty, where those that want to capitalise on that certainly can. But there are people who fear that they may inadvertently be seen to be doing the wrong thing, greenwashing, marketing products as green where they are perhaps not green enough because the requirements are simply confusing. We're speaking not long after some of Europe's top asset managers have been forced to reclassify some of their ESG funds, citing confusion specifically over new EU sustainability rules. So in this context, amid this confusion, what advice would you have for boards in terms of making the right decisions? Thanks, Lucy. I agree with everything you just said. The ESG reg reform agenda presents quite an unprecedented challenge for management teams of regulated firms, and in particular those with an international footprint, because they've got to grapple with three very significant concurrent trends. And so the first of those is a very fast-paced regulatory reform environment. 
regulated firms are seeing multiple new and highly technical ESG regulatory developments in most of the major global markets where they hold licenses. The sheer volume and breadth of those new laws and regulations in relation to ESG is really overwhelming for firms and it impacts everything from their entity level governance, their risk management frameworks, their product and service level considerations and disclosures. And then sitting alongside that, as you touched on, Lucy, there's a very significant commercial opportunity around ESG, which is our second concurrent trend. So another rationale for the regulatory environment being so fast paced is that it has to go toe to toe with the commercial demand for sustainable investment solutions. We often say ESG sells. So another governance challenge for firms is really making sure all of the various divisions looking to deliver on client sustainability demands are equipped with the right control framework to both control risk and achieve commercial success. And the third concurrent trend is really around the shifting landscape on ESG sentiment. So the ESG transition is fundamentally a global issue. It's jurisdiction neutral. However, there are many different lenses through which each of the environmental, social and governance components of ESG are interpreted and they can be very country specific and regulated firms, particularly those with an international footprint, have to adapt to ESG sentiment which can differ country by country and can also change fairly rapidly. So we see European and UK regulators steadfast in their views on the imperative for net zero targets to be met. Over the summer, we saw certain US states put in place laws prohibiting state pensions from working with investment managers that exclude oil and gas. That's running concurrently to the SEC adopting an active enforcement agenda in relation to greenwashing. So putting all of that together, boards of regulated firms have to navigate the business through this ESG transition. And they need to do that mindful of their fiduciary obligations as directors, and they are to act in the best interest of and achieve value for shareholders. So that involves managing the financial risks that the business is exposed to. And for the reasons I just mentioned, the drivers and the crystallization of that financial risk can vary jurisdiction by jurisdiction. But coupled with that, they have to manage the evolving regulatory framework, which is placing new ESG governance expectations on boards. So we typically recommend that boards governing financial institutions through this period ask themselves the following five questions. Which aspects of the sustainable finance agenda are relevant to your firm? And how do you track, monitor and adapt your corporate strategy in response to this? Do you have the right collective expertise within your executive team to understand the risks and opportunities that the ESG transition poses for the business? Who are the key stakeholders involved in the delivery of the ESG transition strategy? Is there a clear understanding as to where responsibility sits in the three lines of defence? What are the necessary information flows between these stakeholders? Next question is, what steps have you taken to ensure that your clients and external stakeholders have a clear understanding of your ESG strategy? And then finally, what action have you taken to ensure that your staff have a consistent understanding of your ESG strategy in the context of your wider corporate purpose? I echo everything that Nicholas pointed out. A couple of points which I'd just add in. I think that, look, ESG and sustainability, it's transitory in the sense of that what we had three, four years ago is not the same as we're going to have in three, four years' time. And for any board, they have to build in growth mindsets to be able to adapt and react to where things go. 
Secondly, you've got to be aware that there's what I call an internal and an external aspect. So what I mean by that is, is that if you were to go to Credit Suisse's website and look at our sustainability report, what you would see is not just what we're doing in terms of the external commitments to net zero, the various regulatory frameworks, for example, the sustainable finance disclosure regulation within the EU, but we also talk about internally what we're doing. So the, the ability to say we've reduced our usage of electricity, we've cycled more materials. And for a board, they've got to make sure that they address both sides, the internal and the external. And it's not necessarily the same stakeholders. So the idea that you can deal with both internal and external, I think, is really important. I think one of the key things is, and as lawyers, we always like a good definition, make sure you know what you're working with. Make sure you know what your definition is. And I think Nicola brought this out. Are you talking about ESG? Are you talking about sustainability? Because they're not quite the same thing. I'd say personally, sustainability is the idea of doing business well within the various stakeholders with which the, the business operates. I think ESG is a subset of sustainability, and it tends to be used as a set of metrics so you have to be very cognizant of where you're starting from. And where is, and I stress this, where is realistic for you to get to in a specific time frame. I think that the net zero targets for 2030, 2050, there are certain individuals who would turn around and make those sort of commitments very quickly. I think that to just make a commitment blindly is not a good move. You have to really plot out what you're planning to do over the course of what's likely to be many years and is also, coming back to the first point, likely to be a changing landscape. It's really interesting, thank you, and really helpful to have those questions, Nicola, for listeners to refer back to as and when they need them. And I'll publish those in the notes section of the introduction to the podcast so that listeners can read those after they've listened to the episode. Simon, given your experience in the banking sector, from a legal and compliance perspective, what does good look like in relation to ESG compliance, in your view? With the conversations I've had with my peers, we're all desperately making sure we don't underestimate this. Would I expect to speak to anyone who thinks they've got everything perfect right now? No, we absolutely are not being complacent about this. So I'm still not sure to be honest, Lucy, if this is a word or not, but I keep using the term demonstrability. Um, most of the people at Credit Suisse who deal with me are probably sick of me using the word demonstrability, but it is actually a key phrase. So you say something and then what are you actually doing? And so there comes a point where if you can't prove it, perhaps you shouldn't be saying it. And I know this sounds blindingly obvious, but everything flows from that principle. So in other words, what do you use to record the information you get from clients? What can you get from those systems to show how you've interacted with those clients, customers, as regards what they want to do about sustainability, what they want to do about ESG, and more to the point, what you as a company are doing? What you don't want is to be in a situation where it takes a long time to access to the data so that you can performance monitor is very important. It's very easy to say you want to start this sort of thing, but you really do have to get into it in a fairly big way. And going back to the comment I made earlier, because it's not that the goalposts are moving, it's the whole sport's changing. 
have to realise that it's a commitment over a fair amount of time. The good news is that you can piggyback off existing governance mechanisms. So if you've got a product governance procedure, you can build in sustainability into that. If you have a risk management committee, it's possible for them to look at sustainability risks. So it's not as though you have to completely create a new set of governance. It's about utilising what you've got, doing the gap analysis and then filling in the gaps. Overall, the word I'd use is adaptation. Get used to the fact that things are going to change over the course of the years and that your institution is ready to do that and understands that there is a commitment which goes beyond this year's budget, if I can put it that way. If things keep moving, then we have to keep moving with them. So there's an understanding that continuous development is an essential. The last point Simon just made around movement and momentum and an earlier point he made around building on existing frameworks is really key when you're judging that compliance gap you were referring to, Lucy, because one of the, the communications we'll often get back from regulated institutions is if we work from the basis that we all believe in being fair, clear and not misleading in our disclosures, what's new here? What are the new areas we need to adapt to? And that's when we'll often reflect on those three concurrent trends I mentioned right at the start. When we're thinking about what do we need to do to make our systems and controls more robust, make our product management more robust, make our back office systems build in the right assumptions. It's about thinking about that landscape within which that control framework has to sit and service the business. So often with an ESG lens, that's thinking about the gap between your ESG goals and, and what's actually achievable within the timeline you set yourself. And so you often have, from a corporate strategy perspective, businesses wanting to be very ambitious and very additive to the ESG agenda and signing up to various voluntary global standards. But it really is important to understand how you as a business will adapt to that, achieve those goals, and within what sort of time frame. And that transcends also into product frameworks. If you're making certain statements about a sustainable investment, about cash flowing from your customer base into a particular sustainable outcome, to Simon's point, how are you going to demonstrate that what you said on the tin is what is happening in practice? So when we're thinking about that in the context of timeframes within which it takes to demonstrate sustainable impact in a meaningful way, are there certain product types which just simply aren't long enough to demonstrate that impact, you know, to give you that demonstrability? So we often talk about in an ESG context, think about the difference between what you're saying you're doing and what you can prove, how are you going to map it, what types of analysis are you going to do, and critically, what assumptions is that going to be based on? Because when you have a moving landscape, you necessarily have to create certain assumptions. It might be that you have to rely on certain proxy data happening. It might be that you rely on certain behaviors by other third parties outside your control in terms of of how they use a particular investment type. But there are inherent assumptions in a moving landscape that you need to be able to articulate to people so they understand the limitations of what it is you're trying to sell them from an ESG perspective. Okay, and obviously the burden for ESG compliance or compliance with any rules cannot sit solely on the shoulders of the back office or middle office. What should those in the front office be contributing here? What does good ESG product management look like? Well, I think that's absolutely right. It'd be a false conception to say that the back office and the middle office can be there as the buffer to protect against the full wave of risks we've just been alluding to. And particularly when 
the front office is driving really hard to meet the demands of its clients in terms of production of sustainability products, production of sustainability solutions. So it's really important that the front office has a very critical, clear understanding of the risks that the business is exposed to alongside the opportunity. And in that context, the FCA now has an ESG market integrity unit. It's actively monitoring statements being made by firms to assess whether there's been any breach of that fair, clear, not misleading requirements. So to Simon's point, ESG doesn't mean the same thing as sustainability. Are you using that terminology in a consistent way, in a way that's not misleading to the investors that you're reaching out to. And then over the pond in the US, despite there being no formal regulatory changes yet, there's a very active enforcement agenda with a number of regulatory fines being levied, particularly against asset managers for misstatements or omissions about ESG considerations or the improper use of ESG terminology. So while some of those things are controllable because you've got documents going through product approval framework, a disclosure approval framework, and your control functions will kick in to protect you. A lot of those conversations are being had directly with clients at the front office level. And it's really important that the front office are therefore just acutely aware of that landscape sitting behind them so that they can tone down and embed the right controls in those front office discussions and in their first product creation ideas. I think it starts with some quite basic points, to be honest. So, for example, who's the person you go to talk about sustainability slash ESG? So within our divisions, you have people that you know you can go to and they are spending the majority of their time, if not all of their time, purely looking at sustainability slash ESG. Those sort of champions, it's very crucial that you set them out so that people can be aware of them. Because with this area, there are so many questions which keep coming up and it's every day, every week, every month. And the idea that, for example, a relationship manager who is essentially day-to-day dealing with the whole whole range of different investments then comes up to a client and the client says I really want to know about sustainability and big thing that is a very very good ESG product management trait is that you've educated your people but there's always going to be that bit which is a bit beyond the today and you need to know who to go to so that's the first thing the idea of having your champions your experts clearly identified secondly governance you need to have governance procedures which not just say what's required but also provide that challenge the the ability to ask the harder questions it's the ability to say how can you stand behind that what evidence have you got for that if you haven't got that i think it's very difficult you get a fragmentation And the fragmentation across an organization is often then comes out in what I call a misalignment of strategy risk, that one area says one thing, another area says another thing. And I think Nicola hinted at that before. So certainly having the governance frameworks there, having internal frameworks which explain the approach of the firm towards sustainability, they're all good. Again, we have to acknowledge that it's all moving. Maybe we haven't got enough guidance. There's certainly not one global definition of greenwashing adopted by all regulators. Now, OSCO had a crack at it, but it's not translated yet. For Credit Suisse, we've got our home regulator, FINMA, came out with a guidance note and have a definition of greenwashing, which I think is actually quite a decent one. But it's not the same across every jurisdiction. And what you have to do is just think of the principles beneath it. The FCA consultation 
around greenwashing refers back to principles about not being misleading, being clear, that sort of thing. And it's an important thing for the front office to realise that actually some of the existing values that they're expected to live by, they're actually greenwashing, ESG, sustainability, all and everything in that area. It's the same principles, actually. Don't mislead. Don't misrepresent. Be transparent. Be clear. Make sure you know what the client's doing, what the client knows and what they don't know. All of these things, there should already be aspects of this in place. And it's augmenting that. And if you can do that, then you're well on the road to doing the right thing. And I would like to delve into a little bit more detail on regulators' efforts to stamp out greenwashing and your views on those. But before we go there, we have discussed the requirements for firms that are seeking to be as ESG compliant as possible in the current environment. What potential challenges do you see in terms of the interaction between those in the front office and back office on ESG matters and how can firms address those? Consistency of approach, as I mentioned, is the key thing. You want to make sure that the front office and back office are all working from the same PIM sheet. Having those internal frameworks and being able to turn around and say, okay, this is what we mean, and it's a common understanding across the firm, that's something which is crucial. This is something which the regulators have been very clear about this idea that you can't just say, we just leave it all to the second line to check what we're doing. They've been very, very clear that ownership lies as much in the first line as it does in the second. So consistency of approach through using internal taxonomies or internal frameworks, I think is a very key point. And as a subset of that, please try and use the same terminology. It's one of those things whereby it's just so easy to see how people can get confused because it's a complicated area and we often have to try and explain things to people who are not experts. And when you factor all of those things in, a consistency of terminology and some real work on the definitional piece underneath it, I think is hugely important. When you say you'd like to see consistency of terminology, are you referring to across industry or within Um, firms? My starting point is is that within the firm, that's where you start, because at least then everyone within the firm knows what they're talking about. And you try to make sure that that's married to what's required from the regulatory framework. I think a common cry from anyone who's working in sustainability across the finance industry is more consistent market practice to be able to have the same definitions, the same documentation. But the area's nascent, it's embryonic, and we're still very much at the inflection point, and we still have a lot more to bring together. And I think everyone in the market knows that. Just to Simon's point around still being relatively nascent, and we've talked about the sort of fast-paced nature of the change, but I think very, very quickly, with the space of a few years, really, the ESG agenda has gone from being a climate risk prudential metric sitting somewhere in the finance team or the financial risk function to being this all-encompassing institution-wide ESG risk, sustainability risk, attaching to all of the different divisions. All of the different divisions have a role to play. And one of the very, very hot topics at the moment is how does each division craft, define, articulate its role in that transition in the control framework to the wider business so everybody understands that they're there to help, they're there to support, but also so there's appropriate limitation on each role. 
So that's one of the challenges that we're seeing currently is saying, right, we're the compliance function. What is our role here? Yes, we've got a lot of regulatory reform. That means new rules to implement. We've got new rules to monitor for, but we've also got new risks on existing rules that we need to be very proactive integrating with our risk function in relation to. So the solution is looking at committee level activities within an organization and saying, right, within this particular committee's terms of reference, is there an ESG lens here? And do we want to embed a particular ESG focus to that committee? And once you've done that across your committee and your governance structure, you can then say, okay, are there certain information sharing needs between the various committees that weren't there before that now we need to add in so that you have a more holistic flow feeding up to the board on some of those challenges. But there is a real active redefining of roles through an ESG lens happening at the moment institution-wide. Okay, interesting. And does that change the skill set that's required? Is there a specific kind of skill set that you're seeing firms are looking for at the moment in the ESG context? Yeah, it's a great question, actually. I can speak even from within our law firm. We now have people who five years ago were not 100% focused on ESG across various divisions of the firm who are now 100% focused on ESG matters for their particular sector. And we see that within financial services firms as well, folks who previously had slightly different job titles moving into more ESG-centric focused roles because it's more than just a part-time role to help to manage the transition. We've also seen examples of boards having very frequent training on ESG matters, the impacts on the institution, the risks, et cetera. And that transcending into all of the various divisions within regulated firms. So upskilling is definitely a part of this. And as part of that training on upskilling and raising awareness of the firm strategy can go hand in hand to help to navigate. Okay. And all this is playing out as there are fairly ambitious regulatory reform programmes underway in both the EU and the UK. And because of Brexit, the government has continued to take a look at the rulebook for the UK financial services sector to see how it needs to change as the UK is now outside of the EU. And on the EU side, EU policymakers are reviewing the EU's vast set of post-crisis rules to see how they need to be updated. In that context, what advice would you have for lawmakers and how best to arrive at rules that make compliance the ESG requirements as achievable as possible. So the EU was very much a first mover in coming out with detailed ESG disclosure requirements and product level requirements. It was probably one of the first areas the UK announced Brexit divergence from some of those EU standards, potentially because we could already see some of the implementation flaws in the later draft, but it certainly gave us in the UK a bit more breathing room to consider what that regime should look like and learn some useful and valuable lessons from the important work the EU you had done. And that trend will continue to go on where different regulators around the world are coming up with versions of similar rules with similar goals. Uh, So for regulated firms, that's a real challenge. And one important message for regulators is that financial products and services are very rarely made for just one jurisdiction. So a huge part of our practice over the last 12 months has been helping investment firms, fund managers based in the US who are looking to raise finance in Europe understand and comply with the disclosure regime under SFDR on a voluntary basis, because if they don't provide those disclosures to the European market, they'll have to cut off investment from the European market. 
So whether it was the regulatory intent or not, the effect is that global firms are having to comply with multiple different disclosure standards around ESG at the same time. And we see some examples of attempts by regulators to have more coordination. So we've seen that in the context of the International Sustainability Standards Board, which is trying to come up with a common unified set of definitions and metrics around climate and sustainability standards. Standards. But beyond that, we're still currently in a situation where there are different labels for very similar products. And so we're monitoring the different fund naming composition rules from ESMA, the SCA and the SEC, who are applying differing percentage thresholds to a fund's sustainability commitment before they can achieve a certain label. So from a lawyer's perspective, that involves quite a lot of careful drafting around what you mean when you use one label versus another so that you're not being deemed to mislead investors and you're not being deemed to conflict with statements that you're having to make for a particular jurisdiction. But the other conflict we're seeing at the moment is just in relation to the supervisory approach. So we've seen situations where firms are applying SFDR labels in order to raise the finance that they're looking to seek from Europe and comply with that regime being picked up by the regulators globally to say, oh, that's interesting when you use that label what does that really mean? And when you use the concept of sustainability, are you looking at that in the context of our rules and our perception of that rules? So it's a really challenging environment for firms to comply with the regulatory standards in each national market and also have a very holistic mindset around that potential for greenwashing risk to understand how European term will be used when it lands on a US investor's desk, by way of example. My view is that there are a lot of very good concepts which have been put forward by regulators. And it's just the transition on it from good concepts into practical implementation. Over the years, there's been examples of where the implementation probably didn't go as well as everyone would have liked. So there's a lot of work which goes on through the likes of the Association for Financial Markets in Europe, where I think they're trying to liaise on behalf of a number of institutions with the regulators to say, look, this is the sort of thing that we can see what you want to do about it. That's a very, very important role. If they can continue to do that, that iterative process through implementation is hugely important. I'll go back to something that Nicola said before about five years ago, there probably weren't that many people who did ESG full time. And if you look in the regulators, it's been the same story. It's only relatively recently the FCA have got the head of ESG in position. And that's not a criticism. It's just the nature of how the market is going. And so we certainly get it's challenging for regulators too. And we hope we can work with them to do the best implementation we can. And in an environment where everyone is seeking to upskill in ESG, the regulator will be under pressure to upskill ahead of those that it is regulating. To what extent are they meeting that goal, would you say? It's fair to say it's not just the FCA. If you look across all of the regulators, they've all geared up what they're doing. The the professionals in in the sustainability field are in huge demand. They really are. And that's the thing which is difficult for everyone. And you've got to make sure that you get the right professionals at the right point in their journey. And that's quite tricky. It's across the market. They are all trying to gear up. I would say, though, that the FCA have been very proactive to try and get ahead of the confusion that new rules can embed. They've had some really useful initiatives around asking the market what their role should be on things like 
should we come up with rulemaking on what it means to be transitioning or developing working groups ahead of publishing their new rules on the labelling regime with industry, with external counsel, all feeding into the challenges of implementing the EU regime and what could change. So I think there is a lot of proactivity to try and aid firms through that transitional journey coming out of the FCA, which has certainly been welcomed. Okay. You mentioned SFDR and SDR, which are respectively the EU's and the UK's requirements for firms seeking to build sustainable business models. And we've also mentioned the greenwashing risk. Nicola, you've referenced the fund naming rules that are in progress in both the EU and the UK. And this is part of regulators in the EU and UK's efforts to take steps to stamp out so-called greenwashing, marketing of products as green when regulators don't deem them to be green enough. And in the EU, the European Securities and Markets Authority is consulting on the introduction of thresholds, as you referenced, Nicola, for ESG and sustainable wording in funds' names, which I mentioned at the start of this episode, have forced funds to reconsider how they are marketing their funds already in the EU. In the UK, asset managers could soon be forced to remove ESG and sustainability branding from their funds as well if they fail to meet the Financial Conduct Authority's new green criteria, which is set to come into effect next year. What actions should firms be taking now to prepare for these measures? There's a very dominant trend for more sophisticated regulatory reform tracking at the moment, spotting divergences between the different regimes that a firm might be subject to, so that if you use the word sustainable in one jurisdiction, it may have a slightly different meaning in another jurisdiction, and understanding where the potential conflicts lie so that you can plan for those. And a lot of the challenge around that we always hear back from regulated firms is, please, can you help me cut out the important content from the noise? Because we could all turn up to our desks every day and read all of the publications that have been put out into the ether on ESG. And it's about helping navigate to the need to know important information that's sort of critical to your decision making. So sophistication around content you consume and what's important in the context of your business is a particular trend at the moment. The other trend, which is obviously a reaction to the enforcement agenda, is crisis planning for a day when you get a greenwashing allegation. In fairness to the firms that have suffered fines in this space, there's a lot of market sentiment, which is, well, that could easily have been us if but for X, Y, Z. So raising awareness of how you would handle an investigation, no matter what form that comes, it could be a climate lobbyist group, it could be a client complaint, it could be a whistleblow, it could be formal litigation being launched or regulatory enforcement. How mobilized and informed are your teams around everybody who would need to get together to understand how you would articulate your systems and controls in response to that type of allegation. And it's important to note that the financial sector is really held as a pretty critical component of the ESG transition. And to Simon's point, everybody is adapting, everybody is relentlessly inquisitive about all of the things they need to do to get to the place they need to get to quickly. But in doing that, the spotlight is very bright and there are various lobbyist groups that will leverage their tools to make sure that the financial sector is moving as quickly as it possibly can because it's critical to the broader transition. And we are seeing that as a real and imminent threat. So making sure that you have your plan for those inquiries, those challenges into your business and understanding all of the plethora of different ways that could come in. 
because it will be multifaceted. It could involve market integrity, market abuse allegations. It could involve antitrust allegations. It could have all sorts of different potential breaches within a broad brush allegation made by a particular third party. So just being wise to that ahead of time and being organized in terms of how you would respond in the event of a difficult interrogation by an external source is an area which warrants a lot of focus at the moment. What advice would you have for firms that are wargaming that crisis situation? What would be the things that they should have front of mind as they do that? So coordination amongst teams, knowing who is your responsibilities map, which areas of the business do you need to go to to get the information that you need to show that the controls are embedded and the governance was in place. And to Simon's buzzword, demonstrability, when we have seen those investigations come in, the information request list that you might get from a third party or a regulator to demonstrate why you put a single word on a particular document are incredibly extensive. So don't underestimate the power of having that substance in your hands when you're trying to defend yourself against claims. It can be a very useful tool. I think Nicholas covered the majority of it there. But again, you've got to gear up with the right staff. You've got to make sure you've got access to the right external resources as well. And yes, having the ability to go to good external counsel is fantastic, but it's not just external counsel. Having the right rating agencies, the right verification people is crucial. Basically, to have someone who's able to independently assess where you're at is very important. Okay. Lastly, and generally, is there a current or upcoming challenge that you think not enough people are paying attention to? Well, I think there's two. The first one is ESG data. I look at it as being the visible bit of the iceberg above the waterline is greenwashing. Everyone talks about greenwashing, and that's an important thing. The bit of the iceberg below the water is ESG data, because everything really is going to be predicated on what you can do to prove the claims that you've made about the sustainability characteristics of the product, the service, even to the extent of your advertising, your marketing. What's the veracity of your data there? The FCA have set up very recently an ESG data, I think it's a working group, and that's good. And there's been calls for evidence as well from BSA. And that's good because it's an integral part of working within the sustainability sphere. So that's one, Lucy. The other one is the concept of green hushing. As you might tell from the accent, I'm originally from the northwest of England. And we have a lovely saying in the northwest of England, which is, when in doubt, say nout. And the thing is that there's a real danger that people are going to start turning around and be so concerned about the regulatory framework imposing a a level which they can't meet, the risk that NGOs or whatever are going to turn around and criticise them no matter what they do, that they'll start shutting up. They'll start not talking about what they're doing. And there's a point whereby you've got to be transparent about what you're doing so you're not misleading clients at a very bare minimum. Secondly, we always look around and go, that's interesting. What could we do in that space? But if you don't hear about it, then you may not actually think of it. And so those sort of aspects, it's something which doesn't help all of us to do the right thing. So hopefully green hushing is not going to develop as a concept and we'll continue to be able to be transparent and provide communication as to where we're going. Okay, well, we've covered a lot of ground and this episode has a lot of practical guidance for listeners who are seeking to comply with the various ESG requirements on their plate. So thank you both for taking the time to speak. Thanks, Lucy. Thanks, Lucy. You've been listening to Following the Rules with Lucy McNulty. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd be very grateful if you could rate, review and subscribe on all the usual channels.
It helps other people get to know us too.